0: And good morning, you may be seated. It's great to be worshiping with you this morning, and it's a privilege uh, to open up God's Word uh, with you today. We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, so if you have a Bible or an app or whatever you may be using, you can follow along. We're going to be in Mark, starting at chapter 8. Now, what we're going to see this morning, oh, and by the way, I'm sorry, I should have said... Um uh, kids, if you, if you have young kids that are going to the kids lesson, now is the time for them to go uh, to the lobby and they'll be walked over next door. And then after service, they'll magically be back in place, hopefully back there in the lobby. At least that's the intent. So, Well, back to where we were. So we're um, diving into Mark chapter 8 this morning. And what we're going to see is the feeding of the 4,000 okay, where where Jesus, it seems to be almost a repeat miracle with some little differences, Uh, but the feeding of the 4,000, and then we're going to see an interaction that he has with the Pharisees, which is immediately followed by Jesus trying to teach and help his disciples to understand everything that's taken place. Now, before we dive in, just know we're going to be focusing on the latter half and not so much on the feeding of the 4,000, but we are going to be jumping uh, back in there um, as we go. But let's look to the Word now. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 1. In those days when again a great crowd had, had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from afar away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed those people with bread here in this desolate place? How many loaves do you have, they said. They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, having given thanks, he broke it and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district at Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees, they came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we come to you this morning, we come, I think, even before we get started, confessing that so often we don't understand and we fail to believe. And we need to gather here each Sunday to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded of our Savior. Would you do that now? Would you... Help us, who are so prone to forget the good news that we need so desperately, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Some of you may have read all the way through; maybe you didn't already get all the way to the end. But the all the Narnia series it ends with a book called The Last Battle, and at the very end of it, you have Aslan, of course, leading a group of folks, and they end up going into this stable that there's going to quickly be the conclusion of everything. We're not going there. But, but there with Aslan and this group of his followers is a group of dwarfs. Now the dwarfs just kind of seem to be hanging around and hanging on to them and following them for whatever reason, but the dwarfs have never been followers of Aslan. They In this last battle, they chose not to fight for him. They chose not to be on anybody's side because, as the dwarfs say, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Okay, and, and Lucy is there on the last day, and Lucy's looking, and she feels pity for these dwarfs who don't understand, who don't get Aslan, who don't know him. And so she says, Aslan, is there anything you can do for them? And he says, dearest, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. And, and so he tries to show him. He, he roars a big roar in front of them, and it's like the dwarfs can't even hear him. They hear something off in the distance, but they don't hear the roar of the lion. And then he sets a feast before them. Okay? The best food, the best wine, he sets it all before them. And they begin to gobble it up. They begin to eat. But as they begin to eat, they begin to complain about the food. It's not very good. They, they, this is just like stable food. This is, you know, it's like, hey, you know, the, the horses eat is what it tastes like to them. They, they, they can't taste the good food that's right there in front of them. They, 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 they can't hear with their ears. They can't see with their eyes. And then they start getting in a fight with each other. And they start, you know, and suddenly everybody's got bloody noses and everything. And, and then finally they settle down. And they say, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And then what does Aslan say? This is what he says. He says, you see, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, and, and yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken out that they of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. And what is Lewis getting at here? For the dwarves to believe, to believe in Aslan, to believe the truth, would have meant their destruction. Because the dwarfs could no longer be for the dwarfs. They could no longer be who, who they were it would it would mean. Yeah, they, they could no longer be the dwarfs that they used to be if they were to begin to believe in Aslan. We have something very similar taking place here in our passage uh, this morning. As, as the Pharisees, they, they come to Jesus, and what is, what goes on? Verse, eight, verse 11. The Pharisees came, and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, this is just on the heels of what? The, the feeding of the 4,000 that we read at the beginning, right? No doubt they had heard about that. Some of them may have even had spies there who saw it. They've heard. They've seen other miracles. So why are they coming? Why are they asking for a sign? They don't believe these signs that he's shown them. They probably believe with the scribes, what we read back in, in chapter 3 of Mark. What did the scribes say? He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he casts out demons. You see, they, they see these signs and they think, well, we don't know the source. We know he's doing these incredible things, but what's really the source? Maybe the source is just the devil. You see, these miracles, they say, they're all well and good, but we don't know the source. And so, what happens? They, they refuse to believe his, his, his miracles weren't proof enough for them. And why weren't they, at the end of the day, proof enough for him? Because they'd already decided. They'd already decided that they weren't going to believe in him. It was impossible for them to believe because their minds were, were already made up, and why couldn't they believe? Remember those words of Lewis? Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they can't be taken out. For the, for the Pharisees to believe, it would have led to their destruction of who they were. It would have, the foundations of all that they believed in would have, would have been disrupted. The Pharisees, they, they had a very detailed system, right? A very detailed system of religion that, that had to be obeyed, and, and in that system there was no category for Jesus. Their system provided no category for him. It provided no category for the gospel, It provided no category for a Messiah who would sit and eat with sinners and tax collectors. That wasn't even possible. It was unthinkable. It was impossible to think of a Messiah that did not require his his disciples to scrupulously keep the traditions of the elders. Okay, There, There was no way that a Messiah would throw a feast as Jesus had just done for a group of Gentiles. Because that group that we read about at the beginning, that feeding of the 4,000, those were mostly Gentiles, no doubt. These are people that, no, you you wouldn't be spending three days teaching them, much less feeding and feasting with them. You see, this is so... out. The Pharisees, they just couldn't believe it. Because at the end of the day, the good news of the gospel was too much for them. Too much for them. And at the root of their problem was a stubborn... A stubborn refusal to believe. A stubborn refusal to believe. They refused to follow the the Scripture because they needed to preserve some things. They needed to preserve their own power, right? They needed to preserve this religious system that they had. At the end of the day, they needed to preserve their identity, and for the Pharisees to have believed in Jesus would have meant a, a deconstruction of that identity. That identity would be pulled all apart and they would be something new and they couldn't, couldn't stand it. At the root of their problem is unbelief. And so what does Jesus respond? You see it, verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit saying, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, Now this is... Not just a little sigh. You know, the other day Adrian had me put up a mirror. And, and I hate putting stuff up because inevitably I don't put it up quite right. And it's not just her, as me. I, like, I, it, it, it makes me go crazy in the head. Um, but anyway, so I hung the mirror. And immediately after putting it up, i re- it's too high. And I tell her it's too high. Oh, no, it's fine. It'll be fine. It's great. And about three hours later, she comes in. Now, don't be mad at me. anyway and what do I do oh, we all do it don't we we all sigh but what we need to understand this sigh of Jesus it's very different this is like a deep like complete de- de- despondence he, he, he's, he's done with them he, he's, he's done it's a sign of complete exasperation and so what does he do? Verse 13, he just leaves them. He's out of there. Like, I'm done. I, c- I can't deal with you anymore. He has no more patience for them. But he sees this, uh, this interaction with the Pharisees, that no doubt the disciples. He, he sees this as an opportunity to teach his disciples and continue to teach them. So, so what does he say? Verse 15, he, he, he sees this as an instructional moment. He says, watch out. He cautions them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven, of course, that thing, you know, today we, ha- we we use yeast a lot more often. Those little, you know, it comes in the little packets and it makes it so much easier for them. It would be cutting off a, a loaf from the old dough and just a little piece goes into the dough and, and it gets all mixed in and what happens? I'm no baker, but it begins to grow, right? And it, it begins to do its thing so that it can be bread, right? And all those reactions and stuff take place in it, and and it just takes just a little bit to infect the whole, right, to make this happen. And and Jesus is saying, you need to beware. You need to beware of that little leaven of of the Pharisees and the Herod, and and what ultimately is it at the root of it? I think it's unbelief. At the root of it is not really believing and trusting in Jesus, because you see, And it even shows forth in how the disciples respond to Jesus because they don't believe. They don't trust him, do they? They don't trust him to provide bread for them. They don't trust his provision. They don't believe he can really do it in a sense. And the disciples, they're hyper-focused at this moment when Jesus says this. You you, you know people, maybe you sometimes get hyper-focused on things. You're so focused on something like it doesn't matter what else somebody's trying to tell you, like it doesn't compute. That's the disciples on this day. They're sitting there looking. Their bellies must have been hungry. I don't know. But then they're thinking, oh, we only have one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? Verse 14, they'd forgotten to bring bread. And they had one loaf in the boat. And then Jesus starts talking to them about this leaven. And, and so then they just think about the bread even more. They completely forget. They, they completely miss this whole idea of the, the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Like they don't, it doesn't even compute. What do they say? Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. Bartholomew, why did you not bring it? You know, that's what, you know, suddenly they're getting in this argument over, it seems, over, you know, who didn't bring the bread? Who didn't do what they were supposed to do? And they've completely missed what Jesus has said. It would be incredibly comical if it wasn't at all funny. Jesus doesn't. Laugh at all, does he? Verse 17, Jesus being aware completely of what's going on here, what does he say? He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? What, <laughs> what, what planet are you on? H- have you not been with me recently? Have you not, do you not remember the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000? And did you not even hear the words that I just spoke? And what planet are you on? Their problem is a lack of belief, a lack of faith, a a lack of of trust in Jesus, right? And let's think, we we see their their unbelief in this story. Their their unbelief started back with the feeding of the 4,000, right? Verse 4, you know, Jesus had just expressed this, you know, he had this compassion on these people. He wanted to feed them. And, And what does the disciples say to him? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Again, it would be funny if it wasn't funny, right? I mean, they should know. The disciples of all people, they should know how when you're out in a wilderness place and there's a large group of people and they don't have food and you have Jesus with you, they should know exactly where to go. This is on repeat. They've seen it before. Maybe you've seen that movie Groundhog Day right? You know, and you got Phil, the weatherman, totally self-centered, totally focused on himself and the whole purpose of the movie is for him to finally learn to be selfless, right? And, and when he learns to be selfless, suddenly that day, Groundhog Day, doesn't repeat over and over and over again. What's interesting, the director of that movie, in his mind, whenever he's making it, he believed that that time that it took for Phil was 10 years. That's what he had in mind, is that that was 10 years of Groundhog Day for him to get it. The one who wrote the screenplay originally thought it was an entire lifetime of Groundhog Days for him to get it. Sometimes we can be so dense, so difficult to understand, to see, and that's the disciples here, right? Like this should be repeat for them. They should immediately, oh yeah, we got Jesus with us. We're in a wilderness place. We got a little bit of this. This is easy. And yet they seem to have no category for that kind of provision yet they still don't understand they, they still don't really really get it you know they, they, they doubt at that feeding of the 4,000 and then when they're in the boat when, when they're there with Jesus and they just have one loaf they begin to worry again they doubt that Jesus can provide for them in that instance as well they just totally fail to see it they see the same thing multiple times, and they still don't get it. They doubt that Jesus is really trustworthy to carry for them. Now Jesus has some words for them, doesn't he? Verse 17, what does he say? He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not Remember? come on, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Twelve. I mean, you could just see the, the, them with their heads down, right? And then just to make sure they understand, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And again, seven, He's saying to them, You've seen with your eyes. You've, you've heard with your ears. You, you've stood there and you physically held those baskets. And you still don't get it. Verse 21, as it ends our passage, do you not yet understand? Do you still not believe? Now next week we're going to see them beginning to show real signs of belief as we kind of get to a pinnacle in, in the Gospel of Mark as Peter confesses Jesus is Christ. But at this moment Jesus is exposing something to them. He's exposing their blindness. If you'd gone to the disciples they would have thought, Oh no, we know who Jesus is. We got this. We know his provision. We, we, we know these things. And we've been, we want to tell you, we, you know, we got sent out on a mission. Let me tell you all the things that we did. done. We, we know Jesus. We know him well. And right there in that moment, Jesus is questioning of them, reveals how blind they really are to him. How they lack true, re- true belief. And, and you and I, we, we read this and we hear, and we see these disciples and we think, how hard-headed? What is their problem? They're with Jesus. But we need to ask question. Are you and I, are we really any different? Do you struggle to believe at times that, that this, all of this could really be true? Do you, too, have pockets of resistance to Jesus? Or are you are afraid to let him in? No, you should. But if you let him in, you're, you're afraid that he's going to mess it up. And you don't trust that whenever he does away with things in you, that he's actually bringing something better. Everyone here in this room right now struggles with unbelief. Don't miss it for a moment. Calvin, I'm not going to read the quote, but Calvin, John Calvin kind of said there's three categories of people. There's there's a couple of people with really strong faith. There's a few people with like medium-sized faith. And then there are many, most of us, who have a small measure of faith. You see, as you're here this morning, you've either never believed and and have never expressed faith, and to you we want to call you to to Jesus, to the the one who went to the cross, who who died the death that we all deserve to die. We want to call you to come to Jesus and embrace him as the one, as the Savior of your soul. The one who's done what you cannot do, who died for you so that you might have life to cover your sins, to wash you clean. So either you've never believed before, or there's another camp of people, people who might express many of us who have put our faith in Christ, who are united to him, but you still struggle with unbelief. And you, you say with that father that we're going to see in a few weeks, hopefully you say with that father that we're going to see in a couple of weeks, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, where do you find this doubt in you? Where do you struggle with belief? Where do you resist Jesus? Where is that place that that, that you say with the dwarfs, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs? You know, that that Steve's for Steve. That place where you're so afraid of being taken in that you cannot be taken out. A couple areas I, I just want to throw out there real quick. One is maybe (laughs) because you're trying to build your kingdom and you're trying to build your name and you're afraid that Jesus is going to come in and somehow ruin things because he's going to come up and and somehow you're going to have to maybe be more generous than you are. You're going to have to maybe give up some of your stuff. You're going to have to sacrifice some of your comfort. You're going to have to love that person that's unlovable you're going to have to forgive that person that you so don't want to grant forgiveness to. You see, there's this root of self-centeredness in us all, uh, a focus on, on protection of ourselves, and, and we're afraid. and We don't really trust Jesus to go into those parts, right? And to remove those parts from us, and if he does, that, that somehow we, we don't really trust that what he has for us is better. We think what we know And where we're going is better. You know, I'd hate for my family to come up here right now and they could tell you all the way that this preacher before you is is so often so self-centered. We all are. We all struggle with a, a focus on ourselves and wanting to protect our own little areas and our own little kingdoms. And Jesus says, that's the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod in your life. You're just concerned with protecting your own kingdom just like the Pharisees. Or maybe, maybe you're the person who you struggle to believe that Jesus, your struggle with faith and struggle to believe on a regular day is to to believe that Jesus really loves you. That the Father in heaven has really forgiven you and washed you clean. That this radical good news of the gospel is really for you. It's for other people, but it's hard to believe that he can really forgive me. Don't I need to clean myself up some? Don't I have to make myself acceptable? Don't, I'm gonna have to do some things. There's no way he can love me the way that I am right now. Or maybe you're you're like we see the disciples in this passage, you struggle with recurring forgetfulness. Recurring forgetfulness part of the reason why we need to gather regularly as we do. Because we forget so quickly. Um, very quickly, in fact. Most of us probably won't make it too much farther into the day, right? before we forget, before we forget the gospel, before we start trying to protect our own kingdoms again, before we begin to doubt again that he could really love us, that he could really care for us? What are those areas of doubt in your life? Those areas that you struggle to believe, where are they at? And lastly, I just want us to think for a moment. Okay, we we struggle with this unbelief. We all do. We're all in the same camp. Let's just get it out there. It's very good for us to hear. We all struggle. And if you don't, that may be a problem. You, you, you may have a very big blind side. The disciples probably on that day, when Jesus confronted them, they probably thought, oh, no, we're good. When there was doubt lurking beneath, obviously, because they couldn't even trust him to provide bread. So what is the bomb for this? And we see, I just want you to see three quick things that we see. First is a compassionate Jesus, a Jesus who is totally sufficient, and a Jesus who's so incredibly patient. Back at the very beginning, Mark 2, remember, he's with a group of of Gentiles, and this is what he says, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from afar, from far away. And this is said to a largely Gentile audience, he has incredible compassion on them, compassion that's actually led him to to be with them for three days, sharing, no doubt, the good news of the gospel, the good news of his kingdom. And he's been sharing this with those who, if he was a proper Jew, if if he was acting like the Pharisees wanted him to do, he would have never taught them. There's no space for them, and yet he goes to them, doesn't he? And he's not just concerned even just with their spiritual condition. He's concerned also with their physical condition. And he wants to care for it. He has compassion on them that that, that they're hungry. And he wants to feed them. He has a deep care and and concern for the crowds. He also has a deep care and concern for the disciples, doesn't he? You know, one of the things that that we said a couple of weeks ago when we did the sermon on the feeding of the 5,000 is in some ways that miracle was as much for the disciples as it was for the for the crowds gathered on that day. It was to teach them, instruct them, help them to learn to trust Jesus. And clearly they need to see it again to learn to trust Jesus, right? And then not only do they need to see it twice, they then need to be confronted with it, with Jesus, before they maybe finally begin to get it. Oh, how forgetful they were, how forgetful we are. And let's not miss the fact that this compassion Goes to us as well. He is so compassionate for us. Willing to come after us again and again and again. So compassionate that he goes where? All the way to the cross. So concerned for you and I that he pays the ultimate penalty. That's how much he cares for us. That's how compassionate He is for you and I, even amidst our doubts. And if He's that compassionate, what do you think He wants us to do with our doubts but to take them right to Him? Take them right to Him. And we need to see, that as we take them to Him, He alone has the sufficiency to satisfy. Verse 8, they ate and were satisfied they were satisfied and then when he we questions the disciples what is he really asking them you don't trust me to satisfy you do you? you you still don't trust that i can bring satisfaction to you you don't trust that i am really sufficient do you do you know that he alone is sufficient or have do you find that you're constantly looking to things in this life to satisfy. Just the other day we, we had a, some folks over at the house and we were talking and in the midst of it came up just a simple little observation that, you know, if you own a home, what do you have? You have a list, right? And that list never ends, does it? The list of things that you want to do to it, the way you want to make it better, the things you want to hang on the wall, the things you want to take off the wall, the things that you need to replace, it never ends. You get a few things done, you might find a moment of satisfaction or joy and then it's, Gone, because then your mind's completely on to the next thing that you need to do. And Jesus is entering in as he is for the disciples and saying, I'm sufficient. I alone am the bread of life. I alone am the living water that can fill you up. He has everything that we need. Your your deepest longings can only be met in him. So what do we do with those longings? Our our, our desires, our, our unbeliefs, what do we do? We take them to him. And he alone can satisfy. We don't take him to the store, you know? Think somehow we can go up and down the aisles at Target or something and, and, and satisfaction is somehow going to fill us up, right? But so often that's the way we live, right? That these other things are going to come in and, and, and satisfy. And he says, no. No. That satisfaction's only going to come in Jesus. And so not only is he sufficient, Um, not not only is he incredibly compassionate, he's also so so patient, isn't he? It's interesting, he was exasperated with the Pharisees, but he was not exasperated with his disciples, is he? Verse 17, do you see what he said? (laughs) Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And I want you to catch this. Do you not yet understand? He has a great hope for them. And that hope comes in that very last verse of our passage as well. As he asks that question in verse 21, Do you not yet understand? He's so patient, isn't he? He's patient with his disciples. And he's patient with you and I. As we struggle with unbelief, as we forget again. He is so patient with us, isn't he? We all struggle. I hope you see. If you don't get anything else, I hope you get this, that we all struggle with unbelief. It comes in different forms and fashions, but it's a struggle for us all. And we should not ignore it. That's the worst thing we could do. We should not ignore it and think for a moment that it's not there. We must not allow ourselves to be blinded by it. We must instead learn to come to him with our struggle, come to him with our unbelief. To say to him, Father, I'm struggling here in this place. In fact, I'm kind of scared to allow you (laughs) authority over this area of my life. I'm afraid I might lose something. And I struggle to believe that you're even better than what I might lose. But isn't that us? Isn't that you? It's me, at least. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself this morning. There was, and I'll close with this, um, a few years back, a, a, an elder in our denomination, he, he suffered a lot of lo- loss in his life, and he took a class, he audited in a class on suffering. And one of the assignments during that class was to write out a lament. You know, like you have Psalms of Lament. And the Psalm, you know, to, to write out a lament to God. And so he wrote it out, and I want to share it with you now. And he wrote it as kind of a responsive back and forth between him and God. I hope you'll hear it this morning. This is what he wrote Why did my daughter's husband break her heart? I know, little child. Won't you tell me, father? I won't, my son. Why does my wife have to live in pain? I know, little child. Won't you tell, my fa- tell me, Father? It would be easier. It wouldn't, my son. Why do parents have to bury their children? It isn't right. It isn't, little child. Then get rid of death, Father. I am, son. Why are your people abused, persecuted, and killed? Can't you protect them? I can, little child. Then do something. I did, my son. Why do my parents need to finish their lives in unrelenting misery? How is that merciful? It is, little child. Then I don't understand mercy. You don't, my son. But it all hurts so much sometimes. I know it does, little child. How do you know, Father? I felt all the pain of sin, my son. Can't you make it all stop? I can, little child. Then do it, Father. I started 2,000 years ago and will finish soon. I believe you, Father. Help my unbelief. I love you, Son. Jesus comes to us this morning. And he asks that question, the same question he asked the disciples Do you, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Father, we we do struggle to believe. We struggle to trust you. We struggle to trust your provision in our life. We struggle sometimes to believe that you really are good. That in some way you really are working all this together for good. It's sometimes it's hard to believe. We thank you for our Savior who has come in to this world, who walked in our shoes, who knows our suffering. And we thank you and we trust your word this morning that you are making all things good. And we look forward to that day when all pain and sorrow will be gone. We believe your word to be true. But at the same time, we struggle to believe that it is. Oh, Father, would you help us this morning to say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Would you go with us as we go into our week helping us to take our struggles or all of those opportunities and places where we struggle to believe would you help us to take them to you we thank you this morning for Jesus would you teach our hearts Would you instruct us more? Would you help us to really and truly understand the depths of the gospel? We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.